Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Friday's Salon had poets Jake Adam York, Michael J. Henry, and even a by proxy David Rothman singing the praises of their favorite poets. Welcome to um, Praise Be, where we talk about contemporary poets that we'd like to praise um, that are not us or each other, that kind of thing. Um, I'm, who, who doesn't know who I am? You guys. Uh, my name is Mike Henry. I'm uh, the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, I'm also a poet, and I'm, I guess I'm the MC. I'm very I am. I'm married to a very cute lady, Andrew Dupree, the program director, co-founder of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Let's give her a hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, one of our panelists, David Rothman, who actually came up with the, uh, the, um, the idea for this panel, um, he's in Pennsylvania. So he can't be with us. So um, he gave me a 45-page thesis to read, um, which I'll start shortly. Um, and I'm not going to tell you who he picked and who, who he's going to praise. Um, but I'm pretty excited. It's going to be good stuff. Um, so anyways, um, our other wonderful panelists, they are here in person. We have the... We have the wonderful Lynn Wagner, um, who is an instructor at Lighthouse, fantastic person, um, author of a wonderful chapbook called No Blues, This Raucous Song, which is available for sale. Um, and also David Rothman, who is not here, has his, his books are here. They're available for sale. I don't think he'll be around to sign them, but I can, I can sign them for him. <laughs> since I'm reading his 45-page thesis. Um, and also we have the wonderful Jake Adam York, um, Colorado, book, Colorado, Colorado Book Award winner. Thank you. I got, I got that, yeah. For um, his last book, which was called Persons Unknown. And his, um, wait, other book, Murmuration of Starlings. Persons Un- Unknown is uh, out recently. Um, all three of his books are available for sale. And they're, they're really good. So, only two? Sold out. It's out of print. It's sold out. It's amazing. All one million copies were sold. Right? Yeah. Excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> um, all right. So I guess we should get started. So I guess the idea for this panel was to talk about living poets, but we, I think some of us have picked dead people. Or did we? We, we, all, we all have live people, don't we? No. No? Yours yeah, is dead. That's okay. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You're going to have to... She told me I can't tell them. Otherwise, she'd hit me in the, she'd cut me off at the knees with a baseball bat. So um, uh, so the idea is to pick um, uh, poets and to talk about poets that we would like to praise. Um, and hopefully that'll engender a really interesting discussion on why these poets should be praised and why we're so hot for them. And I guess I'm going to get going. <laughs> I, should get, I should get started, don't you think? It's about time. <laughs> It's getting kind of warm up here. <laughs> Is this microphone on? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. I'm feeling... No, don't throw stuff at me. That would be terrible. So, um... Oh, I have a handout. Wait, so... 
Uh, yeah. So I, I'm. I'm told I do no, you don't need to. Hear so okay, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give up the suspense. I know you're all dying to figure out who I want to praise. Um, that is the poet Robert Pinsky. So if you've taken workshops with me before, you probably know I have a crush on Robert Pinsky. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and I'm going to pass out a poem and read it and talk a little bit about why I'm so hot for Robert Pinsky. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Read it like Robert Pinsky? Yes, I can, because I've heard him read it. Yes. Oh, yeah, I can do that. It's sort of thick-tongued, yeah. So... This is the most, yeah, the most famous poem. Um, really quickly about Robert Pinsky. Um, he was born in 1940 in Long Branch, New Jersey. So he's a, a Jerseyite. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I like to think of his bio as condensed into three J's. He's from Jersey, he's Jewish, and he likes jazz. That's really all you need to know about him, but I'm going to tell you some more. Um, he's a, the author of several collections of poetry, including Gulf Music, Jersey Rain, The Figured Wheel, New and Collected Poems, which received the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize. Um, it was a Pulitzer Prize nominee. Um, he's written a bunch of other books. He did a translation of um, Dante's Inferno. Um, from 1997 to 2000, he was Poet Laureate of the United States. Um, and he was a pretty active one, I think. Um, he founded the Favorite Poem Project, which probably most of you have heard of because he's a really big fan of um, not only celebrating the art of poetry but really celebrating other poets um, and he's a pretty well read um, column on poetry on salon.com and I guess he appears on uh, the PBS show McNeil Lair Lair, yeah the one guy retired he appears on TV once in a while yes yeah. Is that right? <laughs> um, and the way, the way I'd like to think about Robert Pinsky, uh, hot New Jersey man that he is, I'm gonna, that's it. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to work that. That's obviously not working. So, um, <laughs> how do I love thee? Um, you know, you could take it one way, but also, how does he love poetry, and there are many ways in which he does that. Um, he is a big fan of spreading the love of other poems and other poets. Um, and one of the things, in a recent interview, he, um, he said that um, he places great emphasis on being conscious of one's own sources of inspiration, and calling them out, saying, you know, I, I was inspired by this poet, by this poem. Um, and he suggests that everybody should gather their favorite poems together, like in a favorite poetry poem project, um, as an exercise in self-knowledge. I think that, that last part is the thing I was most interested in, as an exercise in self-knowledge. So the poems you like are an exercise in self-knowledge. They teach you who you are, um, which I found kind of interesting. Um, the other thing is the love of voice, the physicality of speaking, since, as he likes to say, poetry is a vocal art. Um, he believes that poetry offers sensory delights, and he encourages people to read the way a cook eats. Yeah, it's kind of good, isn't it? Yeah, that's a direct quote. I didn't, yeah, um, I, I would say it's, it's safe to say that he's obsessed with the sounds of words, and he often use, uses words as the original momentum that creates a poem. And the poem I'll read, um, it, it, I'll tell you the story about um, where that poem came from. And here's a quote that I just would like to probably finish with. Um, 
He says, your navigational compass, as far as I am concerned, is your voice. How the voice, in a quite literal way, sounds to you as you say the words of the poem. You navigate by sense of elegance or penetration or attraction or mystery in the rhythms. The way the consonants and vowels fall or the sentences reach across the lines. That's your guide, and that's what you sail by. And then all of your own history, which is to say, all of human history, that is the ocean. So he's setting a complex metaphor here. So when you're alluding to the landlord of your apartment, to Hermes, to Maxwell Smart and Get Smart, to the Tang Dynasty, to St. Louis, to the St. Louis Browns, that's all part of the ocean. Parts of the ocean look familiar. Some parts have lots of critters swimming underneath or microscopic things within that might be bewildering or strange. I also admire writing that is transparent. There are poems by Williams, for example, whose transparency I admire, but that oceanic opacity is part of reality too. It's a nice metaphor, you know, you're just sailing along with the language on the seas of your experience and your knowledge. And there's little critters in there. <laughs> Gotta like the little critters. Um, what's that? Kind of scary? <laughs> critters. Could be a, could be a li- leviathan or a barnacle. Write a poem about the barnacle of your life. Will you make a mental note of that? I'm going to do that in my next, my next workshop. You're all going to sign up for it, I know. Yeah. Um, there are two other things I just want to say about him. Um, he loves the play of history, as you can tell by that idea of the metaphor of the ocean. He, he likes to incorporate lots of disparate items in his poems. Often they read like a kind of complex system of list poems. Either it's a, a list of engaging language or a list of strange kind of American cultural objects, um, both high and low art, um, and always some sort of jazz, jazz reference he likes to do. Um, and I think... Um, he, the thing that really strikes me about him is um, his process. I mean, he, um, I saw him read at DU a few years ago. Now, it was probably like 12 years ago now. And he um, was going to read the poem Shirt, which you all have. Excellent. Thank you, Jake. Which I'm going to read in a second. Um, and he said, you know... When he sits down to work on a poem or to think about a poem, he comes up with uh, um, words and language that he's intrigued by, that he may or may not know the definition of, um, and interesting sounding words especially, and he uses that to engender the poem itself, um, which was, you know, when I, when I heard him say that at the time, it was exactly the opposite of the way that I wrote poetry. I felt something deeply, and I sat down to write about it, and I tried to find interesting words to, to capture that, and it was a completely different way of thinking thinking about writing poetry um, with the basis of sound first and then meaning later. And so um, I thought, at first that scared me. I thought, oh, that means I'm not a poet because I can't do that. Um, But I've been really conscious of that ever since then. Um, And the way that he reads poetry, the way he talks about it, you know, poetry is a vocal art. He really inhabits the language. He gets really fascinated by the language. And so he reads in a way that probably can be easily parodied or made fun of. But um, the way he does it, it's sort of, um, it gives you goose pimples, goosebumps, pimples, pumps, same thing. All right, so uh, shirt, I'm going to read in a second. Um, he said the, the genesis of this poem came about by thinking about the interesting language associated with clothing um, and, and sewing. So like a word like treadle or bobbin 
um, he found fascinating, and he started thinking about those words. And he said, and the next thing he started thinking about, which is one of his obsessions, is that our English language is a product of violence. Uh, because you have you know these Germanic words, these Latinate words, these French words, which have come together because of you know various colonizations and wars and battles, and so we have this interesting mix of language. Um, and he also thinks that even the making of a shirt contains violence in it, and that was something he wanted to sort of portray in this poem. So you see that he's the lyric moment is he's just standing there, he's, the speaker's trying on a new shirt. And he's, he's amazed at how beautifully it's made. And then he starts thinking about the history of shirts, of the origins of shirts. Not only this one, but shirts in general. So you'll see these kind of explosions into um, um, kind of musing about those kinds of things. And I'll try and read it like he reads it. Shirt. He really articulates everything. The back, the yoke, the yardage. Lapped seams, the nearly invisible stitches along the collar, turned in a sweatshop by Koreans or Malaysians, gossiping over tea and noodles on their break, or talking money or politics while one fitted this arm piece with its overseam to the band of cuff I button at my wrist. The presser, the cutter, the ringer, the mangle, the needle, the union, the treadle, the bobbin, the code, the infamous blaze at the Triangle Factory in 1911, 146 died in the flames on the ninth floor, no hydrants, no fire escapes, the witness in a building across the street who watched how a young man helped a girl to step up to the windowsill, then held her out away from the masonry wall and let her drop, and then another as if he were helping them up to enter a streetcar and not eternity. A third before he dropped her put her arms around his neck and kissed him. Then he held her into space and dropped her. Almost at once he stepped up to the sill himself. His jacket flared and fluttered up from his shirt as he came down, air filling up the legs of his gray trousers like Hart Crame's bedlamite, shrill shirt ballooning. Wonderful how the pattern matches perfectly across the placket and over the twin bar-tacked corners of both pockets like a strict rhyme or a major chord. Prince, plaids, checks, houndstooth, tattersall, madras, the clan tartans invented by mill owners inspired by the hoax of ocean to control their savage Scottish workers tamed by a fabricated heraldry. McGregor, Bailey, McMartin, the kilt devised for workers to wear among the dusty, clattering looms, weavers, carters, spinners, the loader, the docker, the navy, the planter, the picker, the sorter, sweating at her machine and a litter of cotton as slaves and calico head rags sweated in fields. George Herbert, your descendant, is a black lady in South Carolina. Her name is Irma, and she inspected my shirt. Its color and fit and feel and its clean smell have satisfied both her and me. We have culled its cost and quality down to the buttons of simulated bone, the buttonholes, the sizing, the facing, the characters printed in black on neckband and tail, the shape, the label, the labor, 
the color, the shade, the shirt. Not bad, huh? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and now I will gleefully hand this over to Lynn Wagner. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stand up too. Oh, oh no, yeah, it's going to do the girl thing. Make me. Please, whatever. Um, okay, so Mike. Uh, uh, gave a nice introduction. Um, the people who are in my fun and fearless form class, tomorrow we're going to do the Terza Rima and we'll be um, pointing to Pinsky's Inferno. Uh, so that's good. And um, my poet also likes jazz. Uh, since I'm the only girl on the panel, I would have brought Elizabeth Bishop, but I thought it was unfair to bring a poet who died before you wrote your first poem. So um, I have a dead person, I have a white dead person, but um, I just wrote uh, just this little appreciation, and um, although he is dead, I have a CD of him reading, so later on after we're all finished, maybe we can figure out a way to rig it up. My poet is poet enough even if you haven't heard of him. The author of more than 30 books of poetry, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He won the Bollingen, the Ruth Lilly Prize, National Book Award, and the Book Critics Circle Award twice. Though he attempted suicide at least once, he did not die by his own hand. Though he lived to 87 and wrote over six decades, he taught at the university for only 10. It's like, Andrea's like, who is it? <laughs> uh, we, get, we get a couple more clues. Um, he's been a farmer, fought in World War II, been a mechanic, a logger. That's not uh, bio bullshit, it's true. Logger? A logger. Logger. Logger, not blogger. Logger, not blogger. Um, <laughs> he's also been a freelance writer and poetry editor of the Hudson Review. He's Hayden Carruth, who died in September 2008, a poet's poet you may have never heard of. How many people have and how many... Suppose, oh, so right, I'll, I'll ask that way rather than like, do you know this guy? <laughs> um, an American voice who has mastered the long poem, the short poem, formal and free verse, and is fluent in a northern uh, Vermont dialect that he could employ to spin magnificent poems. Uh, he wrote about life and love and suffering with a dignity that was never complaining or confessional, which I think is, uh, I mean, that's, that's also why I would have brought in Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, beyond the poetry, he's influenced the art through his essays and reviews. He's supported and been supported through his correspondence with other great writers of the 20th century, such as Galway Cannell, Denise Levertov, Raymond Carver, John Cheever, Robert Bly, Allen Ginsberg, Stanley Kunitz, James Laughlin, Archibald McLeese, Thomas Merton, W.S. Merwin, Adrian Rich, Carl Shapiro, and Alan Tate. His best poems shift and, and sneak into memorable lines. Take his poem, Cows at Night, and then this is uh, actually kind of like midway through, Cows at Night. I stop, and, 
I stopped and took my flashlight to the pasture fence. They turned to me where they lay, sad and beautiful faces in the dark, and I counted them, 40 near and far in the pasture, turning to me, sad and beautiful, like girls very long ago who were innocent, and sad because they were innocent, and beautiful because they were sad. Or how about Ray, about the writer Raymond Carver? So he's talking about, the poem opens with, I'm sitting here eating a piece of pie. Uh, Not the pie like my mother would make or my wife, but uh, pie I bought at the Topps Market being blah, 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 blah. And then this is like maybe 70% down into it. Ray, you were a good writer. What crazies we writers are, our heads full of language like buckets of minnows standing in the moonlight on a dock. Caruth is a poet of beginnings and ends, as the volume Tell Me Again How the White Heron Rises and Flies Across the Nacreous River at Twilight Toward the Distant Islands, which is itself a title of a poem in the closing lines. Here's a poem from that book, and the title is, Sure, said Benny Goodman, and it closes with, Once in America in a dark time, the existentialist flat-foot flugie stomped across the land accompanied by a small floy floy. I think we shall not see their like in our people's art again. Um, and then here's another poem from the same book, uh, The Encourageable Dirigible. We were men buoyant in cynicism. Now I remember Lucinda DiCella, who drank a pony of Strega every morning before breakfast and was sober and beautiful for 90 years. I remember her saying how peaceful were the Atlantic crossings by dirigibles in the 1930s when her husband was Ecuadorian ambassador to Brussels. Such a magnificent polychronogenous idea, flight by craft that are lighter than air. I am sure it will be revived. And then the poem ends there. Um, All right. And then, uh, but probably most of all for me, Hayden Carruth is a personal choice because he's the first national level poet I ever met. Not that anyone had ever heard of him, but the more I read his poems and essays, the more I knew him to be a sensitive intelligence presence, a poet's poet. In New Hampshire, I saw him give a whole lecture on poetry by playing a cassette of Billie Holiday's singing Strange Fruit in a Nightclub, and the point of the recording was to catch the little sigh of someone in the audience at the closing of the song. That, Caruth said, was poetry. Haiku from his 1970 Clay Hill Anthology made uh, way for my own witty experiments in urban haiku. The rhyme scheme of the Buddhist painter prepares to paint is what I used for Can I Get an Amen in my chapbook, which I subconsciously answered Carew's 1983 book, If You Call This Cry a Song, with No Blues This Raucous Song. Uh, Carew is a great poet um, who would repay any time you spend sitting in with him. That's a a reference to a book of essays of his. Uh, He loved poetry and jazz. I know people who loved and cared for him, and I care deeply about the art that he gave to me. So that's just Hayden Kruth. And if we figure out a way, we'll we'll even hear him later.
You're going. No, oh, I gotta do rough one. Yeah. Yeah, you good. All right. Forty-five pages. We're ready. <laughs> Hi again. Page one. Okay, so David Rothman sent this, and um, it's really long, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna parse that out a little bit. Can we can we cut that out of the podcast in case he listens to it? Okay, good. So um, his title is "Praise Be America's Greatest Living Poet?" Question mark. And um, I'm gonna read a poem, and I'll tell you who it is. Actually, I'll tell you the title, and whoever can guess it right gets a free beer. The poem's called Leviathan. It's you. How did you know? You are America's greatest living poet. Yes. Does it begin? Meryl? Close. Oh, Merwin. You knew. Did you know? Did he tell you? Are you sure? She knows. You get a free beer. What do you? Wine. Whatever. Have a cookie. Seriously. They have my credit card. Go, go crazy. Leviathan. I'm going to read it. This is the black sea brute bullying through wave rack, ancient as oceans shifting hills, who in sea toils traveling, who furrows the salt acres heavily, his wake hoary behind him, shoulder spouting, the fist of his forehead over wastes gray-green crashing, among horses unbroken from bellowing fields, past bone wreck of vessels, Tide ruin, wash of lost bodies bombing, bobbing, no longer sought for, and islands of ice gleaming, who ravening the rank flood, wave marshalling, overmastering the dark sea marches, finds home and harvest. That's a really long sentence. Frightening to foolhardiest mariners, his size were difficult to describe. The hulk of him is like hills heaving, dark yet as crags of drift ice, crowns cracking in thunder, like land's self by night, black looming, surf churning, and trailing along his shores rushing, shoal water boating, about the dark of his jaws. And who should moor at his edge and fare on a foot would find gates of no gardens, but the hill of dark underfoot diving, closing overhead the cold deep and drowning. He is called Leviathan and named for rolling. First created he was of all creatures. He has held Jonah for three days and nights. He is that curling serpent that in ocean is. Sea fright he is, and the shadow under the earth. Days there are, nonetheless, when he lies like an angel, although a lost angel, on the waste's unease. No eye of man moving, birds hovering, fish flashing, creature whatever who after him came to inherit earth's emptiness. Froth at flanks, seething soothness to stillness, waits. With one eye he watches, dark of night sinking last. With one eye, day rise, as at first over foaming pastures. He makes no cry, though that light is a breath. 
the sea curling, star-climbed, wind-combed, cumbered with itself still as as at first it was, is the hand not yet contented of the Creator, and he waits for the world to begin. Cool, huh? Yeah. So um, Rothman had this big uh, opening where he pretends he's an, um, an alien who's come to Earth and has gotten interested in poetry. I'm going to skip that for the sake of time. Um, but he's addressing us as you know, Earthlings. Your own country has also some extensively fine living poets, from Richard Wilbur to Bob Dylan, from Kay Ryan to David Mason, from Billy Collins to Galway Canal to Adrian Rich to Mark Strand to Donald Hall to Rita Dove, and perhaps even John Ashbery, although none of us can quite figure out what he's talking about. That's cold. That is so cold. That is cold, isn't it? Yeah, that's cold. That's I know. I should, I should have struck it. We're going to edit his piece because he's not here. Uh, There are few among you, however, perhaps none, who rise to the level of the one we consider to be your greatest, who also serves as your current National Poet Laureate, W.S. Merwin. No American poet has ever won a Nobel in literature unless you count T.S. Eliot, which hardly seems fair, as he believed he was an Oxford don. He sure didn't acquire that accent in St. Louis. But Merwin deserves the prize. He has done it all and done it all supremely well, with passion, grace, and fire. He is a singer and has been singing beautifully for more than 60 years. In fact, the splendid poem about the whale, Leviathan, with which I began this address, appeared in his third book, Green with Beasts, that appeared when he was 29 years old in 1956. Merwin was born in 1927 and grew up in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Jersey, again. His father was a Presbyterian minister, and there are spiritual themes about Merwin's work that derive from that background and also from his own Buddhism, though he never preaches. He graduated from Princeton, what a slouch, uh, and one of his classmates was Galway Canal, and um, he studied with R.P. Blackmer, whose teaching assistant at the time was John Berryman. He did another uh, year of graduate study in the Romance languages, and then after college worked as an assistant to Robert Graves on Majorca, which was apparently a terrible experience. Don't talk to me about Robert Graves. I don't want to hear about it. Um, he has won every prize your country has to give, beginning with Auden's selection of his first volume, A Mask for Janus, as the Yale Younger Poets Prize selection for 1952. Um, and uh, my current office is another Yale Younger Prize winner, um, Thomas Farrell. His office is my office now. Anyways, I digress. Um, he's won several Pulitzers for poetry, most, re- most recently 2009 for The Shadow of Sirius. When I say he's done it all, that is no hyperbole. He's translated nearly 20 volumes of poetry from ancient Greek, Italian, medieval, and modern French, Russian, Spanish, Japanese, and other languages. Um, what else? Much of Merwin's writing alludes to deeply personal experience, uh, although the poetry generally obscures the specific details in favor of pure consciousness and emotion. I wish David would hear. I'd like to ask him to unpack that statement. At the same time, he has lived a fully engaged life, including outspoken opposition to the Vietnam War, a fierce, deep ecological environmentalism, and passionate defense of the rights of indigenous peoples, especially those of Hawaii, where he has lived for several decades and which formed the basis of his book-length narrative poem, The Folding Cliffs. He lives on the north shore of Maui in a town called Haiku, 
where he has restored his property to a pre-human contact botanical garden. Can a garden be pre-human, though? Eden, sure. Eden, yeah, I suppose. There were people in Eden. Two, na two naked people. Anyways. Um, all of this is merely preamble to the poetry itself, which is what matters. Prizes are meaningless to us, the aliens. It's the poetry that counts, and Merwin is a master of the art. Um, during, 1960, during the 1960s, he removed all punctuation from his verse, as he had come to believe that it looked as if, quote, stapled the words to the page, and he wanted them to float more freely. He also loosened his verse considerably, especially in his famous books, The Lice and the Carrier of Ladders, and went through a phrase that in which much of his work was more abstract, if not obscure. Every book, however, always had a core that revolved around his great themes, the intense reality of nature, and humanity's often foolish responses to it, passionate brooding on the passage of time and the persistence of memory, fierce exploration of identity and of the spirit, especially as measured against the void in which creation floats, certain burning political issues, especially the evils of war and the nature of art itself. Um, let's see, what else should I read? That's it. There's more, but I won't. I won't. Next, Jake. I'll keep it secret, too. I feel like we're playing uh, What's My Line or something like that. If uh, you guess who this is before I finish, uh, Mike will buy you a beer. <laughs> Venus's fly traps. I am five, wading out into deep sunny grass, unmindful of snakes and yellow jackets, out to the yellow flowers quivering in the sluggish heat. Don't mess with me, because I have my Lone Ranger six-shooter. I can hurt you with questions like silver bullets. The tall flowers in my dreams are big as the first state bank, and they eat all the people except the ones I love. They have women's names with mouths like where babies come from. I am five. I will dance for you if you close your eyes, no peeping through your fingers. I don't suppose to be this close to the tracks. One afternoon I saw what a train did to a cow. Sometimes I stand so close I can see the eyes of men hiding in boxcars. Sometimes they wave and holler for me to get back. I laugh when trains make the dogs howl, their ears hurt. I also know bees can't live without flowers. I wonder why daddy calls mama honey. All the bees in the world live in little white houses except the ones in these flowers, all sticky and sweet inside. I wonder what death tastes like. Sometimes I toss the butterflies back into the air. I wish I knew why the music in my head makes me scared, but I know things I don't suppose to know. I could start walking and never stop. These yellow flowers go on forever, almost to Detroit, almost to the sea. My mama says I'm a mistake, that I made her a bad girl. My playhouse is underneath our house, and I hear people telling each other secrets. Anybody? Bueller? <laughs> All right, this is Yusef Komanyaka. This is one of those poets, and this is in particular one of those books, Magic City, that if my house were on fire, if I were getting on a plane in 20 minutes, this is one of the books that I would, I would carry with me. 
Uh, it's a book that I, I bought in the presence of the man himself. I actually bought both of these books on the same day, Neon Vernacular and Magic, Magic City. And I was so timid at the age of 22 that I didn't want to ask him to sign both of them. So I asked him to sign the bigger one. And then I kept the smaller one hidden behind my back so he wouldn't think that I was waiting for him to sign. What, what year is Magic City? Uh, what is it, 93 maybe? Is that right? No, it's in the early 90s, 92. Um, I saw Komanyaka in 95. It was a really important moment in my life. And he gave what I still consider to be the best reading I have ever heard in my entire life. He came into a really dark, kind of black box type lecture room on the Cornell University campus after he was given a very glowing introduction about how many books he had published, how many prizes he had won, where he was teaching, all this sort of stuff. By the way, like 18 books, every prize. I mean, Merwin's got shit going for him, but Komenaka's right there. The scorecard has got to look almost exactly the same. Teaching at Princeton, etc. He read a poem. He read another poem. He read another poem. I don't know how many poems he read. He did not talk between the poems. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. But it wasn't the theatricality that got me. What got me was, from the minute he started speaking, this poet whom I had heard of and whom I knew existed was displaying, was performing something that was really important to me that I could hear but I think not a lot of other of my classmates could hear. And that was a little southern accent. Komanyaka grew up in Louisiana. I grew up in Alabama, and I spent a lot of every summer in Louisiana. And so the landscape and the language out of which he was writing, I felt, maybe appropriately, maybe not, were my landscape and my language. And I was trying at the age of 22 with a cultural inferiority complex the size of the pre-Civil War American states to figure out how I could be a poet with the cultural inheritance and the cultural freight of having been from Alabama. And Komanyaka was somebody who, in in the sound of whose voice, in the sound of whose poetry, I found a model. And at that time, I think I felt that as a white poet, I probably shouldn't admire him publicly. I shouldn't admire an African-American poet publicly because someone was going to jump up and say, hey, that's not yours. You need to let that alone. So I admired him secretly. I kept all of his books. I read all of them from the very earliest to the, to the one that came out like two months ago, The Chameleon Couch. I get these books as soon as they come out and I devour them. And I feel very strongly that I've tuned in to some sort of some sort of type of God's music, something that is before everything else begins. Um, Hayden Kruth liked jazz. Robert Penske liked jazz. Komanyaka is jazz, I think. Um, I can't say enough about um, why I love his work. His accent and his subjects, you know, writing about the, um, the rural landscapes of the South which are not simply these magical childhood places where anything could pop out of the boxcar or a flower, but are also the places where many men and women were murdered during the years of the Civil Rights Movement and during all the decades before, between the Civil War and then, and even before that. 
during slavery times. He writes out of a haunted landscape, which I feel is very much the world in which I grew up, confused by the complexity of that. And he's given me a guide to, to live in a world like that. Whenever I read his work, I think back to the words of Emerson in his essay, The Poet, in 1844, when he describes a moment in his youth when he was sitting at a table in a dining hall or in a study hall, and then one of his friends left, and he looked over and saw that his friend had wrote these wonderful poems. Emerson wrote, The world seems always waiting for its poet. I remember when I was young how much I was moved one morning by tidings that genius had appeared in the youth who sat near me at table. He had left his work and gone rambling, none knew whither, and had written hundreds of lines, but could not tell whether that which was in him was therein told. He could tell nothing but that all was changed, man, beast, heaven, earth, and sea. How gladly we listened, how credulous society seemed to be compromised. We sat in the, in the aurora of a sunrise, which was to put out all the stars." Boston seemed to be at twice the distance it had the night before, or was much further than that. Rome, what was Rome? Plutarch and Shakespeare were in the yellow leaf, and Homer no more should be heard of. It is much to know that poetry has been written this very day, under your roof, by your side. And even though I've only been in a room with Yusef Komanyaka for probably like 70 minutes, in one April afternoon in 1995, and so I've never had this poetry written in the same room as I was. I feel very, I feel very clearly when I'm reading it that that is poetry that is written in the same world from which I come, and for that, for me, it is indispensable. And I think for maybe slightly different reasons, I would say I would have no hesitation saying every American needs to have a copy of Yusef Komanyaka's poems, at least one of those books, and to read it simply because there are still, I think, there's still not enough testimony to this kind of, this kind of life that is happening, that has happened and is still happening on the margins of a geography and a history and a race. Those things are important. They're part of what make our our country good and part of what make it complicated and ugly too. And I think we have to embrace all those things in the way that Komanyaka very skillfully embraces nature, embraces magic, embraces childhood, embraces geography, embraces love, embraces death, embraces music. Thanks, Jake. Um, so I guess at the point, do you, maybe we should toss it out to the audience, or is there anything else that... I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't need this. Uh, it was interesting, I thought, that all three of us chose poets of voice, and I was hoping that... Jake, could you talk a little bit about kind of like um, the gumbo of... Komanyaka's voice because it, I mean if you ever get a chance to hear him read you really should because I remember him reading that poem and so I can hear him read it when, yeah. when he reads so talk about that well, you know where you know because it's not just that touch of southern what else is it well no I mean it's 
I guess when I call it, when I said a touch, if I, that's the word I use, that would be that was the wrong word. Um, you know, Louisiana is a very unusual, very unusual place. There are not many places in the United States where uh, three or more languages coexisted almost equally for a long period of time without one of them being kind of legislated out of reality. And so, in in uh, in Louisiana, maybe four. You know, in Louisiana, you've got English, you've got French, you have Cajun. You know, which is a, a, a patois. I mean, it's a combination or a pidgin of those languages. And then you also have Native American languages. I mean, Comanaca comes from a town called Bogalusa, which is a Creek Indian word that means black water. And the Alabama that I grew up in has many towns that are also. Creek name for Creek words or for Cherokee words, and so I know the roots of these words from that. Komanyak has got those four languages embedded in 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 his English, and so it, it would not be inaccurate to say that any English that's spoken in Louisiana is already a kind of um, multiple language. You know, it has all these different voices inside of it, and so. There's that, but it's also the fact that it's it's a Southern English, and this may be a kind of regional chauvinism on my part, but I feel that for, and this is probably true for other regions as well, but Southerners feel this very acutely, that their language has to often be hidden and to masquerade inside of a standard English in order to you know live even for a moment on the telephone outside of the South. I still remember the moment when my first week in upstate New York, I tried to order a pizza, and I couldn't even order a damn pizza over the telephone because they, they claimed they could not understand what the hell I was asking for. You know? And I tried to, to try to break it down as much as I could. I was like, a, a pizza, man, a pizza, pepperoni, all these other things, you know? And they, they claimed they couldn't get my address, 105. DeWitt Place, number four, you know, could not make it out. And Bogalusa is um, probably about 45 minutes north and a little east of New Orleans. So if you can see Mississippi in your head, Mississippi River comes down this way, and then there's that little kick, right? And then it goes down again. It's on that border in the little, the toe of the boot. That's where it is. So I think Komanyaka's voice is not gumbo, but is is jazz in which there's multiple rhythms and multiple melodies going on at the same time. And he's so skillful at switching between one level of the melody and the other. So, yeah. Would you say it's true for Hayden Kruth also? That idea that you know you have to kind of embrace the language of your heritage or your place. He goes he goes all over, but he does. I mean, he's another person that it's nice to hear a poem in his voice. And I've actually I, I had uh, had a friend in workshop who was blind who had recordings, and so she had a recording of Caruth probably when he was in his. 60s and the CD, you know, he's in his 70s or 80s, and it you know, sounds nicer. So, um, but also sort of knowing how when he's doing the the rhythm of the Northern Vermont kind of thing, 
to hear how to how he would ride the rhythm. And I think it's I think with Komanyaka, it's a rhythm thing too. On that, that's I'm I'm remembering the rhythm that he was reading in, and I'm also remembering the rounding out of the words when he was reading them. So. Right. And that's, I think, contrast to the specificity of the way that Pinsky reads, the way he articulates every consonant, every vowel. Uh, he what? He's so percussive. It's like he's going to punch you out with his tongue. Well, you know, he's an aspiring jazz uh, musician, and so I think he, he thinks of his voice as, as an instrument, and he's going to, yeah, he's going to be very percussive. Um, he doesn't seem to spit a lot, but I think he really he really just gets it. He gets into it, you know. And he's but he's a clean reader. I, I don't. I wouldn't like say. Mike didn't do a good imitation. Oh, you don't think so? You have, no, like he. he he's much lower. The back, the, the yoke, the, the yardage. Line, right? Well, you got to kind of make it your own a little bit, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right um, what do these people want to know? Well, I just want to read one quote, and then we'll throw it out to the audience because I think this relates to it. And this is. Um, uh, he, he wrote a book, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, it's like Democracy and Culture and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, um, I have it here somewhere, if, if, if you really want to know the exact title. It's a really tiny one. Yeah. He says, poetry answers and evokes our anxieties about mass culture with an individual enigmatic fate. It answers, it answers and evokes our anxieties about fragmentation with the fiery ingenuity of its cadences, which I think we're talking about a little bit, the fiery ingenuity of its cadences and the audacity of its references. These are the inclusions and audacities of American art, not tamed by expectation, untranslatable by journalism or pedantry, outlandish, even barbaric sounding its yawps somewhere over our worldly roofs or beyond them. I just thought, you know, the, the idea of, you know, I mean, he uses the word audacity several times in, the, in that, um, you know, we have to be almost, um, to be a good artist, you have to be untranslatable, pedantic, outlandish, barbaric, and audacious. That's, that's, that's the core of what an American artist should be. I think that's kind of interesting. Two of those words are Whitman's words, right? To be untranslatable, to be barbaric. Those right. come from song, song of myself right. and, the, and the author. So maybe right. three, of, three of those. Yeah, words. yeah. So he's he's really he's continuing that tradition of what what is American poetry, which you would go you would go back to Whitman. Yeah. Um, well, let's toss it out for questions. Yes. Next year we'll, only, we'll do only dead poets. Why? Oh, sure, we can do that. Well, I'm not the program director. I, I don't get to decide programming, so. <laughs> I can always submit a proposal. Yeah, I love Elizabeth Bishop, and I actually toyed with the idea. Of, of choosing her, we could, and actually, um, John Brem, who um, sadly just recently moved away, he taught an, an, a four-week class on Elizabeth Bishop, and it became it was so important. He did an eight-week class. I think, yeah, she's she's one of the, um, I think one of the most important people. I, I I just adore her poetry. It's also important to say that like the Q and A. I mean, this is the place where the things that. There's always going to be something that doesn't make it onto the stage, right? And this is the place where 
you know, we're not leading this thing anymore. Mm -hmm. You're leading it as mm -hmm. much as we are. And we do need to talk about Elizabeth Bishop and the people who come after her, who would not have been possible without her. Beth Ann Finley, mm -hmm. Kathleen Graver, Larissa Sporlock, Bridget Begin Kelly. I mean, yeah. the list of fantastic contemporary female poets who also should be saved from any burning house is so long. I mean, there's no way that we could ever that we could ever get through it. And I think one of the things that we tried to do in choosing was to bring to the microphone poets who had touched us personally. And I think it's just sort of bad statistic, statistical luck that we didn't bring a lady poet with us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Is there somebody you wish besides <laughs> we could we could talk about Bishop, but I think you know. Sherman Alexi, really interesting. Yeah. I think for me, you know, um, I hadn't read a lot of Elizabeth Bishop until I went to college, and then I went to graduate school, and one of my instructors really, really liked Elizabeth Bishop, which was sort of shocking. He was kind of a, an insane guy. His name is Bill Knott. And, um, I mean, we spent hours reading um, at the fish houses, you know, line by line. And um, I, I think the, the thing that I, I thought was remarkable about, about her is that... Um, I, you know, the inclination, I think, for contemporary poets is to write personal. You know, I, I write very, very personal um, poetry. Um, you know, it, it, confessional is, is, it seems like it's, it's very, very important to the culture these days. And yet, um, I don't know if it always makes for a great poem. And to see her reticence to write about personal, personal life. Um, and, and I think for me, I like Robert Pinsky partly for the same reason, is that he's able to capture emotions and complexities in a way that Elizabeth Bishop can do the same thing, you know, while talking about these mundane objects like a shirt or uh, an oil refinery or a jar of pens or for Elizabeth Bishop a fish you know um, or a, a set of a doily or lost keys a filling station you know those kinds of things um, and, and I was always impressed by that and I think I aspired to do that in a way to get and the irony you know is to get like, like T.S. Eliot said, the extinction of personality, to get more personal by being less personal. You know, that, that's an interesting paradox to me. Um, and because it's a paradox, I don't think I've ever figured it out, but I think it's one of the reasons why I always go back to Elizabeth Bishop. Another, another quote I was thinking of, I guess, I just happened to get 
But I think he's an amazing no, reader, he's and he's got a really distinct yeah. voice, um, and his poems are beautiful. So it's interesting that he says that. Um, other questions? Have we answered all your concerns? <laughs> uh, I just want to say I think this is just so wonderful. I just, I just wish we could do this again sometime, and maybe I wonder if there's a way to do that as a, a buzz or something to get just a, a group of poets well, or maybe it's like a thematic something or other. I mean, some places, like for example, in New Jersey, they have, uh, I don't know what the heck they call it, but it's like a marathon where like they, re I don't know if it's like, Genuine, they like read for like freaking 24 hour kind of. Is that right? Over yes, yes. They, but that would be New Jersey. In New Jersey, yeah. yeah. People, you know, roll up the sidewalks in New Jersey after night. Yeah, Rich. It's maybe a non-poetic question, but for modern poets, what, what are the criteria? Is it the experience of the poem? Is it the, uh, you read resumes for the and published in the boards and that kind of thing, but there's, there's something visceral that when you hear it, you know it. So is the question like what makes a great poet? Yeah, what, or a great poem, or a great poem. Yeah, in, in modern, or even the poems we read, what what, what makes them great poems? Well, I mean, I don't know that we need to say like, I don't know that we need that adjective modern. I don't know that coming into the modern or the contemporary era poses any challenges that are fundamentally different for us as readers than they would have been for readers in previous eras. You know, my first poetry teacher said to me that, and this was his advice for me as a writer, that a good, a good poem, one that you wanted to keep working on, was one that would speak three languages. It would speak to the head, it would speak to the heart, and it would speak to the body. And so it had to be intelligible, it had to have emotion, and then it had to have you know, what we might call like the, the, the viscerality. It had to appeal to that kind of haptic reptilian mind that is underneath all of our brains. And it's hard to think of a poem from whatever era that 
at least for me anyway, does not offer that. I mean, is it the, is it, you know, the, the wanderer, the wayfarer in Anglo-Saxon times, or is it John Milton, when I consider how my light is spent, that sort of thing. I mean, these are all poems that you read them and you have to puzzle them out a little bit, but then once you've gotten past that threshold of strangeness, you're, you're in an experience and in a place that starts to kind of take you over. I mean, poetry is, as I often say, poetry is the first information technology. It's also, the, I think, the first virtual reality. And this is why we like to keep reading it. It's because it carries us forward into lives that we otherwise couldn't have chosen to live. So I think a great modern or contemporary poem is doing all those same things. And it's become part of, I think, how we introduce poets to talk about the fact that they have awards or teaching positions or things like that. I think those are forms of saying, hey, this is a real person. But in reality, all those things are really just witnessing the fact that that person, whoever they are, has enough of a gift that they can kind of keep, keep taking us to that other place over and over again. So I'll put my money down on that until there's a Star Trek transporter technology. And then at that point, I'll probably still rather read a book of poems than get on the transporter platform. Poetry is the news that stays news, right? And, you know, it, it, and yeah, I think the idea that it's, it's a most, sort of to kind of repeat what you said in different language, but it's a, one of the most basic forms of communication. You know, it, it, it's different than conversation because it's constructed, but it's constructed in a way that has to address those three kinds of things. And what is the thing that you're trying to communicate? Um, and, and often I think, you know, the way I always look at it is that the speaker or the writer is is communicating with the self first, and then when something actually is communicated, meaning is made and then understood, um, then the poem gets on a level where the reader can feel how the meaning is made and understand the meaning in, yeah, again, that intellectual sense, the sort of soulful kind of heart sense, and then in, in, in a bodily sense. Um, you know, and I think different poets come at it from different ways. You know, certain poets really attach and attack the heart. Certain poets attack the intellect. You know, I mean, uh, Kim Adonisio is very different than John Ashbery, for example. You know, um, but if they had a baby, it'd be really that'd be a really freaky baby. And that'd be really unusual, by the way. Um, and then, you know, I think um, JD Fry. you'd have J.D. Fry exactly. <laughs> And he'd give you a T-shirt, uh, <laughs> you know. I mean, so you know, they captured the two, those two things, and then you know, to capture that sort of that gut, that really visceral sense, um, you know, a real a poet that addresses sound. I think Robert Pinsky wants to do all three, but he goes at it from the from the sound first, from the sounds of the language first, or even mu- music, you know, uh, like. Um, David Rothman said Bob Dylan or uh, a, a good rap song. You know that the, your first experience of it is is through you know through the ears as how how does it sound and if it captures your attention there, you know it, it it has found a way in. I think, and you know so does a good poem have to do all three? I think yeah I think you're right I think it does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 
But to do something, he has to say something, right? Well, <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. yeah. Poem is a place where language becomes action, I think. And I mean, you're right to say we overlook what this language does, or maybe even we overlook specific words that people use, but I think that's simply because you, in order to go through your life and get things done, you often have to translate very quickly the words other people are using into ones that are easier for you to remember. And poetry, good poems, robust good poems are ones where the language says, I'm untranslatable. You cannot have me in any other language. And that way, I think, this would be another maybe slightly more perverse answer to your question. I think that the thing that good poems offer us all is a, a sacred experience. We are able to touch something that is so exceeding of everything that we know. It feels like it's been here before everything else. Hmm. Yeah. Other questions? What about She and Robert Frost are not very far off in terms of their lifespan, right? This is one of those things that points to how big of a badass Robert Frost really was, is that he too took up an idiom that was really more natural to the early 19th century, not even to the late 19th century, but to the early 19th century, and was able to execute it, realize it in a way that was hospitable to the American language that was hospitable to that New England dialect that he grew up in and that he spoke. And Malay, I think, just never, as a, as a poet, got to that point where the sound of the, of the living vernacular got into her work and was able to animate it. Yeah. I mean, as a political poet, as a poet of wit, which I think that's how I would describe her, yeah. she was able to use certain things like the sonnet, for example, to do things that were, that were funny and were cutting and, and delivered commentary, but it required her to be distant from that, from the side of your reception. You know? That's true about funny poets, you know? You've seen funny poets, you meet them and so forth, but often after a reading, even if you laughed your ass off, you have no sense of who they are as people. Like if somebody asks you a question about them, like what movie would they go see? Unless you can name some, you know, riotous comedy, you have no idea because you don't know anything about them other than the moment of the laugh. Yeah. Hmm. And so they often tend to be really, they're, they're really private people. You know, I think of John Gallagher, for example, is a very interesting contemporary poet. He's a really funny and kind of perverse guy. And I've known, I've known him for probably like five or six years. I couldn't tell you anything about him at all. He's just that private. And I think a lot of times funny people are that way. So the humor is a way of connecting without connecting in a way. Right. We're going to psychologize this guy. Um, 
for some reason you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, one of my poetry teachers in grad school. She loved Mark Halliday. She thought he was absolutely hilarious. And he was in an anthology that she made us buy. And um, I haven't seen or heard of anything from him in a long time. And, you know, I don't know if it's because he's, his, his humor was mid-early 90s and he couldn't break out of that. Uh, and he, so he's kind of stuck, you know, sort of like... Uh, I don't know. Unknown yeah, or like a Friends episode, you know. It's just kind of he, he's he's there and he's he's an historical document kind of. I don't know. That makes it sound sad, doesn't it? He's a good poet. He's a fine poet. Other questions, concerns, comments? Poets, you think we should have captured? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know that it needs to be talked about, but I don't know. No, he doesn't. <laughs> 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 huh. Emily Dickinson. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yes. Uh, I know you guys had to, there has to be another poet that you wanted. I want to talk about it too. I don't want to just, I don't want to leave this other one out. I'm just curious really who that was for each of you. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to do Bishop, but she had been dead for a long time. So yeah. since it was called Contemporary Poets, I felt bad putting Caruth in, but he was he's, he's too big for me for, for it not to be out. And, um, you know, not everybody knows him, so it's a good gift. Uh, yeah, it, it was tough. I wanted. I thought about Bishop. I thought about Merwin, um, and actually, I was really seriously considering Merwin. And then David sent me his um, treatise. So stole your thunder. I couldn't do Merwin. And then I, I you know, I love Sharon Olds. Um, although I love, I love Sharon Olds. Remembering her when I was a graduate student and first coming upon Sharon Olds, I think Sharon Olds now has almost become a parody of her of her writing because she really has not changed very much over time. Um, and I think so her effect has, uh, has, has worn off on me a little bit. Her power has worn off on me a little bit. Um, uh, other poets, I'm trying to think. Can you talk a little bit about Kathleen Graber? Because I don't know her very well. I couldn't say enough good things about Kathleen Graber. Um, what is her name? Kathleen, with a K, Graber, G-R-A-B-E-R. Um, a great story and even better poet. A woman who taught high school in the public schools in New Jersey until... New Jersey! New Jersey! New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably until she, right around her 40th birthday, decided she had always been kind of playing with poetry and wanted to make a change in her life and to do it more seriously and so decided to go back to graduate school and, you know, probably finish the program at NYU maybe six, five, six years ago, something like that, and has exploded as if out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So she's written two wonderful books. One was called Correspondence. It's on Saturnalia Books, and the most recent one is called The Eternal City, and it's on Princeton University Press. And there are three or four writers who are very important to her, and she's sort of carrying on a, a dialogue with them through her work. One is Larry Levis, and he's one of the people I, I might have talked about if we were just doing whoever. I mean, I, I admire his work. His work, Without his work, I couldn't write what I write. And also, 
he's has some personal importance to me because of the friendships that I have formed around his work with, with other writers, um, including with Craig Arnold, who uh, died climbing a volcano two years ago. So Levis, Walter Benjamin, the, the uh, German philosopher. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, those are the two big ones right there. She sort of keeps working with them over and over and over, and I think Bishop is, is in here as, as well to a certain extent. Um, the poetry is very associative. It's very meditative as well, though, in that she's often thinking about something like, um, what does it mean to be a new person in a town and not to know anybody, and not to have any of the stability of contacts, or maybe even any of your uh, personal impedimenta to keep you rooted in place, and so she's often capturing the experience of these sort of transitory states through this meditative form, which is fairly casual and, you know, a little, the poems tend to be a little bit on the long side, but they're pretty phenomenal. Marcus Aurelius was the other one I was thinking about, the, the, the Roman guy. Uh, she's, off, she's often. He's talk, not from Jersey. He's uh, from Old Jersey, yeah. <laughs> which in Rome would have been Jersey, uh, I think. <laughs> So I, I can't say enough good things about her. I mean, she's if you were to if you were to meet her, if you were to talk to her, you would think, wow, you know, here's a poet who's been around for two decades or three decades, and she talks and performs with that kind of gravity and authority. And yet, we only have two books. They're both amazing. And the the most recent one was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. And I'm confident that in a very short period of time, another four, five, ten years. She will be one of the big luminaries. Her name is Kathleen with a K, Graber, G R A B E R. Uh, the early book is called Correspondence, and the most recent book is called The Eternal City. Yeah. Did you have anybody you wanted to add? Can I close with a Caruth poem? It's relevant. Sure. <laughs> I think Jake should. Jake should talk about more, yeah. Well, I mean, I, part of the reason Levis is important to me is I see, I see American poetry since the 1850s, since we had Whitman and Dickinson, as trying to figure out how to choose between or integrate the two principles that those poets represent. Whitman representing a kind of narrative uh, bent and Dickinson representing a lyric uh, tendency. And the poets who are most interesting to me, Ashbery included, uh, figure out a way to marry those two principles that is unique. And Levis, I think, does that in a or did that in a spectacular way. You can look at his early poetry and you can see how indebted he was to Phil Levine, who was his teacher at Fresno State, and how important that experience was in helping Levis learn how to write about his life as a, you know, basically a farm boy in California's Central Valley. His father owned, um, you know, basically a, a grape farm. They sold their grapes to the wineries. And he grew up on a farm doing all these farm things and living this life that was sort of apparently culturally impoverished and yet from a later perspective had all these great 
uh, legends and all the great flavor of old California, not Los Angeles, glossy California, but like real old California, sort of an almost Steinbeck-y kind of flavor. Um, the thing that's really remarkable about Levis, though, is to see where he went from there. And they never gave that up, but managed to, to add to that something that was oddly spiritual and intellectually capacious. I mean, think, think of what would happen if you took Philip Levine, and to that you added something that was kind of like Charles Wright. And then you put William Blake in it. <laughs> He's capable of these great leaps of imagination, these great sort of brilliant flashes. And the very last book he was working on when he died, the book that is called Elegy, is I think just a, I, yeah, I could, talk, I could lecture on that book probably for two or three hours. I, I think it's a masterpiece for lots of different reasons. Um, Levis is important to me in part because when I was trying to get my first book together and starting, I think, to stumble into what has become the central task of my work. Several people kept telling me, you know, you really should pay more attention to Levis. You really should read Levis more. And I'm sort of a stubborn character. And so whenever somebody tells me to read something, I write it down, but then I deliberately don't read it at that moment because I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that thing and think about what that other person wanted me to see. I want to find my own thing in it. And so one of the first people I remember really campaigning me about it was Craig Arnold when we were driving from here to Boise to give a reading together. And he kept saying, like, you have got to read this. I don't know how you haven't, like, really taken this in to yourself, but you have really got to do this. I'm not going to stop at a truck stop until you promise you're going to read. I don't care how bad you have to pee. It was really close to that. It was really close to that. And so after that trip, I bought the book and, re and read it and read it and read it. But I really didn't get it, I think, until I was working on a documentary film with some... So I was like the grip on the film. And um, we were going to interview Philip Levine in his backyard in Fresno. And he was supposed to talk about his career. And then we got there and he said, fuck that. I'm going to talk about Larry Levis, who's the most amazing person in the world. And for somebody with Levine's power and accomplishment to say... I don't want to talk about myself, I want to talk about Levis, was a kind of testament to the, yeah. you know, the brilliance of the career, but also the power I think he had in the lives of other people. And since then, I've met people who were his students at Virginia Commonwealth in the last years of his life, and they all have the same experience, that he was this luminous figure in their life. And you can get that from the poetry, I think. And so, I mean, if I were making myself my list of of one book to leave the house with, that would be the, that would be the top book. I mean, Komenyaka is somebody who I would carry probably second, but that would be that would be first for sure. Yeah. 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 I think in any list of the 50 greatest poets from the latter half of the 20th century, or maybe even from the 20th century as a whole, like he would have to be there. I would think. Huh. Interesting. Um, take one more quick question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I didn't understand why you didn't want to talk about E.E. Cummings. Well, we, we could, I, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Very, very quickly, I think most of E.E. Cummings is a typewriter. Meaning? Meaning most of the, most of the poems are tricks of layout and not really Ty typography. of language. They're tricks of typography and not of language. And yeah. I mean, I'm saying this as somebody who was in love with E.E. E. Cummings 
all through high school, saved up my money, and one of the first books I bought when I was in college was that giant, however big that thing is, what is it, like 800 page, hardcore brace, Jovanovich, you know, collected E.G. E. Cummings poems. And I read them all. I read it from cover to cover. And you can see that he was writing like Keats when he was starting out, and then suddenly he decided, hey, there's a typewriter. It can do crazy shit. <laughs> and then stop writing like Keats. And what I love about the best poems of Cummings is how that romantic sensibility that we love in Keats is still there. Yeah. Uh -huh. But so much of the time, I think the typographical stuff just gets in the way of seeing that. I, mean, I think he's a great erotic poet, but most people want to talk about him as this like crazy experimentalist. But I don't think he did anything on the typewriter that Ezra Pound hadn't done before the spring of 1915. So. Yeah. What I was thinking about, and that, that makes sense. I really haven't read very much of his, his work, just the, that one really thin volume that had uh, 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 well, some of his more famous poems. And I never really read them as much as I, when I did read them, I just listened to my mind to them and how it sounded. And that's kind of what I was in love with, was the sound of those particular poems like colors. Yeah. And, and that's, I guess I have a pretty narrow understanding of what it's like. Thank you for explaining well, I just think he's basically it's a Keats tribute band, you know, in the same way that if, you really, if you really like the band Kiss in the 1970s and now you go see a Kiss tribute band, like I feel like that is going to see a Keats tribute poet, you know. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of how I think of Cummings. So just really, unfair, but yeah. really quickly, if, if, if your house were burning down, what book would you grab? Bishop. Bishop. Ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, well, no. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like into Kindles, but if you could have something that had it all, need to be all set. It'd be yeah. good. Yeah. But I like a real right. book. Because so. in some ways, it's a little bit. Yeah, I think I would grab Tony Hoagland's Sweet Ruin, just because it was it was a really important book for me. Is that when I was learning you know, to be a poet. Also, the other thing, because isn't it a charming thing when when poets inscribe books? So I mean, it right. would be like if I had a bishop book, it wouldn't be inscribed. That so, would be neat to have one, wouldn't it? I might that have to cool. pick up the Carruth because yeah. it is. I think it's raining. That's my guess. So. It rains in Denver. So thank you, everybody. Thank um, you. We can continue this conversation over cookies. Cookies. And, Just don't yes. eat too many. And for class books are for sale. Please help yourself. And yeah, please eat some cookies. And enjoy the rest of LitFest. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.